It's the UEFA Champions League on Paramount Plus. Europe's top club soccer tournament. Champions versus champions. The best teams facing off in the knockout rounds. Magnificent! And it all takes place. While you're filling out financial reports at work. In the middle of your day, in the middle of your week. So use that second screen. Call in sick. Do whatever you gotta do to tune in Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Nobody watches the UEFA Champions League like us. Stream every match live exclusively on Paramount Plus. Welcome to the Inside Carolina Podcast on the Beat Live. It is Thursday night, 8 o'clock. We've got the band together. InsideCarolina.com, sponsored by Johnny T-Shirt and JohnnyT-Shirt.com. On to be live comes, like I said, the band. Well, the band includes the lead singer tonight. Greg Barnes was not with us a week ago or earlier in the week when we did this. Uh, as news of Jay Bateman's departure became known, Jason Staples was here, Buck Sanders was here, Taylor Vipolis was here, Gregory Hall was here, and myself was here. I was here, so we'll go to Greg first. Greg. Um, your overall take on the past week in the Carolina Football Center, in the Keenan Football Center, it's been um, – it almost seems like we just pressed rewind a little bit. Different head coach, but some of the same players showing back up in Chapel Hill. Yeah, and one thing to kind of get things underway uh, is because of the potential of scheme changes with Gene Chizik, uh, I expect there to be some movement in the transfer portal. And so we have breaking news. Uh, just got uh, confirmation that freshman, uh, I guess he was outside linebacker, defensive end, Travion Stevenson has entered the transfer portal. So that's yet another one. Carolina's got to be getting close to 20 guys that, has, that have left the program um, this year with eligibility remaining. So I suspect there will be more of that to come. Uh, that happens when you have uh, coaching changes. But to answer your question, Tommy, yeah, I mean – it's this has been a fascinating couple of years because uh you know when, when matt comes back uh you get all the good vibes from the first Mac brown era and i think we were all excited about that and uh you know everybody around the program all the boosters were excited because this is a guy they knew and loved and he did so many good things for the program uh you know, drake Bly comes back tommy thigpen comes back there's a lot of familiar names and now a couple of years down the road all of a sudden, here comes Gene Chizik back. Here comes Charlton Warren back. Um, so a lot of the guys that we've worked with before are back, and a lot of them you know, saying a lot of the same things. And um, obviously, that's that's a good thing because what happened when Gene and Charlton were here the first time was good. Um, but yeah, really, the only difference between the press conference with with Gene Chizik today and the one we had with him seven years ago was today we were on Zoom, and seven years ago we were sitting on the fifth floor of the, the Keenan Football Center talking to him. Um, but, you know, uh, I was not on the roundtable earlier this week, um, and I know Jason caught some flack. We can dive into that if you want. But I think more than scheme, which I think is you know, clearly debatable about what Gene's going to do, because at, at this point in time, we're not really sure what he's going to do. Um, but we do know that Jay Bateman's scheme was cutting edge. It was progressive. It was kind of how – college football is moving 
but there is more to coaching than just scheme. Uh, and I think what Gene Chizik will bring is accountability. Uh, he's a guy that has won a national title as a head coach. He's won a national title as Mac Brown's defensive coordinator. Um, he commands respect. And so if there are any players on this team who are full of themselves, or there are any assistant coaches who think they can disagree and get away with it with the defensive coordinator, Gene will hold them accountable. And I think that's needed right now. Uh, and so that, uh, that, that's one of the big things. And, and we can dive into that with, with Taylor about what Gene did seven years ago. But there was a complete turnaround in that locker room when Gene first returned. Uh, I don't know that we need to see anything quite that drastic this time. But certainly there were some things that were not going well on the defensive side of the ball, both with the coaches and with the players. That has to be corrected. There's way too much talent on this defense for the defense to be as bad as they were last year. There's just no question about it. Uh, and I suspect the defense will make significant strides, but there's a lot of work to be done before we get to that point. Yeah, interesting on the breaking news. You're right. Just the nature of the beast. Um, I do find it interesting. Didn't he release um, some Twitter practice highlights? Go ahead, Vip. The only reason a player releases a practice highlight tape video, one, it's a walk-on trying to prove to people back home that he's actually on the team. Two, it's a scholarship guy transferring. So the the practice clip video should have kind of been a red flag to people. I think that something probably was up. Yeah, that, it was interesting. Buck Sanders, let me bring you in. Here's what I heard today. This is all I heard today. Accountability, same page, unity. And one thing that Charlton Warren talked about that I particularly like is they can bounce ideas off of each other in the meeting rooms. They can share their thoughts. They can do this. They can do that. But once they leave the room and get in front of the team and get on the field, they're all going to be on the same page. And they're all going to be uh, – there will not be any question about what they're trying to do. We can debate whether that happened a lot this past season. But, but your take on what you heard today from Mac, Charlton, and Chiswick. Can we really debate that, Tommy? Some could. We can debate. Some people would debate anything. <laughs> what do you think, Buck? Buck, you're still on You're mute. muted, El Jefe. Okay. There you uh, go. I, I, I stayed muted about 55 of the last uh, 60 minutes when we did the last <laughs> podcast. So I didn't know if I was going to get to talk this week or not. So, uh, in, in any event, um, what Greg was talking about, I think is maybe the most important point is that, you know, Mac Brown comes with a, a certain amount of, uh, gravitas because he's won a national championship and, uh, one of the winningest active coaches, uh, currently, um, but Chiswick has his own gravitas and I just cannot see a situation where um, anybody, whether it's, uh, another coach or somebody just in the Keenan football center, uh, you know, somebody peripheral to the program or a consultant analyst, or anybody, um, telling Chiswick that, you know, maybe you should have think about this, you know, before you decide, I mean, he, he's going to be the man in charge and he, he might listen. I certainly probably listen to different, 
um, ideas that people have, um, different suggestions and so on and so forth. But um, there's just not going to be any doubt as to who's in charge. You know, as Tommy also said, when they leave that meeting room, uh, nobody's going to be saying, well, does this guy really know what he's talking about or maybe we're not going into this game with the right game plan. So I think maybe the biggest part of this could be unity and, and consensual unity. Uh, so, uh, uh, but that's where I would leave that. That is a, I don't know if we've ever used that word on this podcast before, but I, I like it. And uh, consensual uh, unity, consensual unity. Yes. That is yeah. a, as opposed to involuntary, you could call that unity. a buckism. <laughs> Absolutely. And, but, um, turn your notifications off on that text thread that we're both on because, uh, one of our buddies is on a rant about the yeah. current state of college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is. <laughs> Jason, I'm gonna I'm gonna get VIP in because I want to hear the Chiswick stories from 14 or from 15, 16. But uh, you got some explaining to do, Lucy. When uh, you, you last week or earlier this week talked about it was not an upgrade, um, I will let you take you the floor. No, Tommy, briefly. I think we should just let that go. I mean, haven't, no, haven't I got, we all haven't we picked all the feathers off of that turkey already? I want to give really? him an opportunity to uh, explain himself because I have been blown up by people demanding that Jason back off his stance. And I don't need a 10-minute monologue, Jason. I just need a couple minutes as to explaining why um, you feel the way you do. And also, did you change your opinion after listening to the press conferences? So... The primary thing in saying that, you know, the question of whether it's an upgrade or not uh, has to do with the, with the coordinator itself. Uh, I think the two, the two coaches coming in the way that they did and allowing uh, Chiswick to be a free-floating coordinator, the structure itself with a, with a good coordinator, I think that is an improvement. That is an upgrade. The structure itself is an upgrade because a large percentage of the problem that we saw, in my opinion, had to do with position coaches and everything not being all necessarily, first of all, on the same page. And secondly, there was a lot of slippage and a lot of things allowed to happen technique-wise and even effort-wise at times, but especially technique-wise and in terms of what, what is expected within the defense it was allowed to happen from the position coach side. And my, my answer of whether this is an upgrade or not, it really boils down to are those, are the places where those mistakes were being, were consistently being made across a given position group. And that's the thing. I mean, if it's one guy in a position group, you can say, well, that guy's just not getting it. If it's an entire position group that you see certain fundamental mistakes that show up across the whole board that's coaching problem and there were multiple positions on the defense that i saw over and over again particularly on the front seven where guys were in the wrong gap guys used the wrong fundamentals when they actually you know when they were when they were doing their assignments and it happened over and over again and in my opinion there is no upgrade until that changes and basically I have the coaching changes that were made weren't there weren't in the, in the spots where I saw some of the biggest 
uh, fundamental mistakes. So my, my answer basically boiled down to, no, it's not an upgrade because we, we don't see a whole lot of, we haven't seen movement there. Here's where it could be. It's not, I'll just say this. It's not a guaranteed upgrade. Here's where it could be and should be an upgrade because of the structure. And that is with Chiswick being able to float around more as the coordinator and work specifically with, let's say there's a, a position coach whose guys as Chiswick is looking at it are not necessarily producing. It doesn't just become a butt chewing in the, in the, uh, in the coach's meeting room. It becomes a Chiswick suddenly becomes the additional position coach with that group for that week, for the next week to make sure that those things can get handled that would become a significant upgrade. And that's where the structure helps. And I think today it said a lot that they, when they said, when, when, the, when the roles were clarified that Warren's not just the safeties coach, Warren's being brought in as the secondary coach. I'm the secondary coach and Dre Bly is the corners coach. And we're all going to have the, we're going to have the whole group in the same meeting room and Warren is going to be coaching all of them. And then when they get out on the field, some of the, some of the technique stuff and all of that, Bly will be coaching under the auspices of Warren. These are the sorts of things that needed to happen structurally. And ultimately, if that stuff, and that's where some of the stuff that, that was discussed in the, in, the, uh, in the interview gave me some encouragement that there may be reason to think that this will be a, a significant step forward in terms of improving some of the technique stuff and some of the coaching stuff on that side. The other, the final thing was I was not, I mean, I know how it ended with, with Chizik under the last, in the last regime and that he was not putting in a ton of hours. And I mentioned that before, and, you know, if he's putting in all of those hours and is fully committed the way that he, that, that he has been at, at different points other than that season, then yeah, I think you can say that fairly that that would that you should expect that to be an upgrade. But without that, you know, without and I'm told uh, he's you know buying a house in Chapel Hill this time and all of these things that makes a difference. That that changes that some of those details change my my answer to some degree, even though the the basis for it remains. Yeah, I, I think we deal in absolutes too much, and I think that's a problem. And so one of the things that we try to do at IC is is provide some of the uh, ambiguous information, kind of cut between the black and the white and, and you know, touch on the gray. And I think this is a situation where that exists. And people think that, yeah, you get rid of Jay Bateman, everything is solved. Not the case. I mean, if we go back to 2014, we knew what happened at the end of that year. That defense was not any good. Larry Fedora's opinion of Vic Conan had not changed, but Vic had lost the players. And so what happened? Vic basically says, you know what? I need to move on. It's better for the program. So Larry didn't fire Vic. They had a parting of ways, which is the same thing that Mac and Jay did. But what happened in 2014 is that Ron West was fired, linebackers coach. Keith Gilmore was fired, defensive line coach. Dan Dish was fired, cornerbacks coach. And Vic Coning was fired or left, safeties coach. So when Gene Chizik came in, he had a blank slate and he he was able to build from the ground level up that's not happening this time and if gene had just come in and everybody else had remained the same other than jay uh i think gene would have had a lot of work in front of him to kind of get everybody on the same page both coaches and players adding charlton warren though and, and listening to how things played out 
uh, Max said that after him and Jay had a conversation, he called Gene. Gene very quickly said, hey, I want to bring Charlton on with me. Well, that's why Javon DeWitt got shown the door. It's to make room for Charlton Warren. Um, and with Warren having already worked with Gene, having all the success he's had in the SEC, uh, this gives Gene somebody to lean on. And I think that's critical because as, as uh, Charlton made the point today, he didn't come back to North Carolina just for the co-DC title to make himself feel good and make it look good. He's actually going to be a critical part of this defense. He's going to be making decisions. The main difference between him and Gene, Gene's going to be calling the plays. And so you got two guys at the top of the defensive structure who are going to be, and, and Charlton said this, he's going to be holding accountable not just the players, but the coaches as well. Everybody's got to be in line. And so there, there's a lot that kind of goes into this. And uh, with Gene and Charlton coming in, uh, speaking their message, that's going to help facilitate this process. But don't think that just because Jay Bateman leaves, everything's coming up roses. That's not how this works. So do you One think it's a better – go ahead. I was going to ask if you think it's a better situation this time around that it didn't need to be like a fresh, clean slate and Gene has Charlton, but then also for the players have position coaches that they already know. Do you think overall that makes it a better situation or do you think it makes it tougher? Jason, you want to take that? That's a – I would say a little from column A and a little from column B. I think it's harder for, for Chiswick. I think that makes it things more difficult to bring the culture change that you want on defense. Because they're not all his guys. Be, right. Because they're, first of all, they're not all his guys. Second of all, the players have been comfortable with these, with the coaches as things were right. And part of what they need to do is stimulate a significant amount of discomfort among the players in order to change the culture, which is, I'm, I'm, you know, Vip, I'm looking forward to hearing some of your stories about some of the discomfort that was introduced when those changes went down, because that's the only way that you get better. But quickly following up on Greg, I think actually the fact that Warren is going to have a say here is really helpful, is good, because he's been in the fire very recently. And at a place like Indiana, he actually used a hybrid 3-4-4-3 uh, four, four, front which would really work well with Carolina's personnel with what they've recruited to. And that also goes to one of my concerns that I mentioned in that, in our day after is personnel wise, they've recruited to an odd front for the last three years. And now if you just shift to, you know, the, the, the even front that, that Chiswick has used pretty much his whole career, it's going to be some interesting fits, but if they do what Warren did up, up front at Indiana, which is, basically an even front, but with a little bit of a hybrid on, on one end, who's a stand-up end, uh, and, and you do some additional things with that guy, that actually adds some versatility to the defense against some of the spread looks. It makes me a little more comfortable as well. So just one last thing there. Yep. Uh, you were there when uh, Chiswick round one came through. Uh, what changed immediately as you observed the other side of the ball? when Chiswick walked through the door do tell I think the biggest thing right away that like you that was a noticeable change is like people are sitting up straighter in the meetings people are a lot more focused in the meetings where it's like Shaq kind of described it on our podcast like they knew they were a bad defense and all of a sudden their their ticket to getting out of being a bad defense walked through that door when just like four or five years before he walked into our Keenan football center, 
we were watching him on TV winning a national championship with Cam Newton. So it was kind of like an eye. It was it was like an eye opening experience where we were looking around like saying like this this same team that just got destroyed by a Rutgers team in a bowl game. This coach who leaves a job at ESPN, the the cushy job at Bristol or wherever he's based out of. Um, that same coach wants to get back in the grind of college football with a group like us. So there must be something in this room that makes him want to get back into coaching because I, I'm, you know, I'm sure he likes getting paid, but the, the dollar wasn't the, the ultimate decision for coach Chizik to get back into coaching when he has made as much money and he has had as much success. So I think the, the biggest change right away was the demeanor of the guys on the defensive side of the ball, where, you know, they're, they're getting to meetings way earlier. They're staying after practices way later when it felt like before that, like, I wouldn't say it was uh, everybody on defense because I think you do have great guys on the defensive side of the ball, guys like, you know, Jeff Shotmer and Shaquille Rashad that were trying to hold everybody to that right standard. But when Gene Chizik came in, it was kind of an eye-opening experience for the entire defense as a whole to be like, you know, we, we have been bad. This guy has won a lot. If we just listen to him, we're probably going to have some success. And then I think you kind of saw that take off. Vip, as someone in the opposite side of the field from both Gene and Charlton, how did you see the actual practices change as far as going up against Charlton's DBs and whatnot, on-field stuff? Yeah, the the biggest change that I would say and one of the stories that I have from um, practices was if practices just felt like they were a lot more physical, but not not more physical with without a purpose. Um, I think at times – under coach Koning, the practices felt physical, but from a sense like, you know, why are, why are we doing this? Why are we chopping at the offensive, uh, the defensive lines knees and getting our heads smacked? Like, why are we doing that kind of physicality stuff where, you know, and when coach Chizik came and coach Warren, it's, it felt a lot more purposeful where it's like, we're one-on-one on, um, we did this. I remember coach Chizik's first practice when we were in pads, we were, doing this like one-on-one board drill and it was basically you're just right up next to another db and you're just driving to see who who could kind of win the one-on-one matchup and the way it broke down was basically like our one receiver would go up against the one corner like quinshot versus mj stewart and then like switz versus um des lawrence and then it would kind of go down the list like that but somehow our numbers kind of got thrown off as we kept going through and like, we just kept each like bumping up one and I'm up on on, against the board across from MJ Stewart. And I'm like, looking, I'm like looking at like brew. (laughs) I'm like giving brew a look like brew, like help me out, like save me, like say something. And like brew's like, all right, Vip, give it, give it a go here. And like coach Chizik really didn't know who I was. It was the first day of practice. And MJ drove me back and threw me down so hard with such force that, like, all I remember from the corner of my eyes, like, I could see Chiswick, like, jumping up and celebrating. And, like, everybody, all the receivers are like, that's messed up. Like, we shouldn't have have let that happen. But, like, and then, like, the, I think, I think Brewer went up to Chiswick and was like, 
you just, you just absolutely bullied one of our walk-on receivers for for no good reason. But I think I think the the main takeaway from that was the the physicality from the practices, and they they were they were physical, but with a purpose. Man, I'm getting flashbacks to 20 years ago. Oh my gosh, that is hilarious. That's a great story. Board drills, board drills were a nightmare for for, for walk-ons against some of these guys. Oh my god. One of walk, one of my fellow walk on walk on. It's a different story. Walk on and you're like once I saw the numbers getting thrown off, I was like, uh oh, like something something's off here. It was it's one, one thing to be walk on versus scholarship. It's another thing to be walk on versus scholarship. Who's about to play in the NFL? And you've been there. I've been there. And look, there's a difference. <laughs> there is a reason that that guy goes on and plays in the NFL. <laughs> One of, one of my teammates actually separated his shoulder from being thrown down on the board, essentially, by, uh, by, by a scholarship guy. So, Yeah, somebody on the YouTube chat said, y'all, you boys were cannon fodder. Buck, let me bring you in. Um, it sounds to me, just from this discussion, that the main issue with Jay Bateman was that he did not or could not, for whatever reason, connect to the players to get them all in, um, whether or not it was differences in coaching styles, differences in any of that with his fellow defensive coaches. But that sounds like the main issue that's gone on for the past couple of years. Your take on that, and I agree that Chiswick brings a built-in, like you said earlier, the gravitas that if some 18 to 22 year old kid doesn't want to listen to him, um, they can just say hit the road. I mean, he's got rings to show that it works. Same with Mac Brown. Um, but Bateman did not have that weight. Um, and I'm not saying it was all on him specifically because ultimately it goes to Mac Brown, but that seems like where we are, um, in this move forward and why it makes Chiswick's higher and Warren's higher for that matter, all the more important, and maybe um, weighty for this Carolina team, Carolina defense. I'm in a little bit different place with it, Tommy. I, I just don't think at this point it matters whether uh, there was a disconnect between Bateman and the players or Bateman and the other assistant coaches or Bateman with random people in the uh, Keenan football center. I don't, I don't think that really matters to what Gene Chizik's job is coming in. And, and I don't think, uh, Gene looks at it that way either. I don't think he looks at, uh, entering into the building and getting his defense together and figuring out what he's going to spring plans are and all that. I don't think he looks at it as in terms of, let me correct Jay Bateman's mistakes. Let me figure out where Jay Bateman went wrong. Gene's got his own plan and his own way of doing things. And, and he's got decisions that to make going forward, moving forward that have absolutely nothing to do with Jay Bateman. So um, I just do not know because the situation of Gene Chiswick coming into this defense and the situation of Jay Bateman getting hired, those two things are very different, right? I mean, Jay was a group of five uh, defensive coordinator, had never coordinated a power five uh, defense before. Uh, relatively fresh in the defensive coordinator ranks. Uh, 
And whereas Gene Chizik is, you know, a well-established, well-credentialed, everybody knows who Gene Chizik is when he walks through the door. Um, their two situations are very different. And so I think moving forward, it's just going to be, I'm more interested in, and I don't know, that's a topic probably for another day is, is, uh, Gene Chizik going to be trying, trying to drive his daddy's Oldsmobile, um, when he rolls out his defensive plan, you know, uh, is he, is he going to try to put, you know, three. 240 pound linebackers out there and cover a slot receiver with Jeff Schottmer, for example, uh, love Jeff, great guy, uh, great teammate. Um, but that's not who I would want covering Josh downs. If downs was on the other team. Uh, so I'm more interested in, uh, how Gene is going to approach, uh, this 2.0 version schematically. Uh, how he's going to use his personnel. Uh, those kinds of things are more interest to me than how he goes about uh, solving the problems that Jay Bateman had. That's a great point. Move forward. Greg, uh, in regards to what Buck said, did I hear Chiswick or, or did I mishear or misremember what he said? When it, it sounded to me like he said in year three, had he stayed the first time around, there were going to be some schematic changes in year three. But either way, um, your thoughts on his ability to adapt his beliefs and his core beliefs about defense with uh, the college football 2022. Yeah, so good questions. And, and Buck brings up a good point. One, one thing I want to point out before diving into your answer there, Tommy, is – we made a big deal when Matt came back. He had been on the sideline for five years at ESPN. Um, he talked about seeing how the landscape have changed, both offensively and defensively, schematic-wise. How we wanted to, you know, follow Lincoln Riley's footsteps in what Oklahoma did offensively, and then wanted to get creative on the defensive side of the ball. Um, as a head coach in a CEO role, that's a pretty easy deal, right? Because you just hire an offensive coordinator who runs air raid and a power running game. And then you hire a defensive coordinator that checks some of those boxes. Mac himself had to get acquainted with it, but he wasn't actually running the schemes himself. That's different with Gene. Gene's been on the sidelines since he was last in Chapel Hill. Uh, but now he's coming in as a defensive coordinator. He's got to develop that scheme himself. And I agree with Buck. I, I think that'll be fascinating to see. Uh, there's, there's no doubting that North Carolina has immense talent on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, I mean, he's, he's going to have a top 10 class, two top 15 classes and a top 30 class that Mac Brown has signed at his disposal. Uh, and then you know, we've, there's at least one portal, uh, acquisition and, and Noah Taylor that we know is a veteran guy who played good at Virginia. Um, good player. yeah. So a lot of, a lot of options for Gene. And so how does he change things? And that, that'll be what's so fascinating about spring ball and so i think that's a great point by buck um the other dynamic of this in terms of gene changing things um people need to remember when gene came in as we talked about earlier i mean the defense side of the ball was in disarray and vic honing had a unique style that he was running trying to get ahead of this, the spread offensive schemes uh fedora really liked it because fedora thought that what 
Vic was doing with basically two hybrid players on the field at defensive end and also kind of in the rover position, that made it challenging for his spread schemes. And that's why he wanted Vic as defense coordinator. Well, when things went south, Gene came in, and of course he changed the scheme. But Gene had – it seemed as though Gene planned on being in town for a while, and then things ended up working out where he was not able to be so. And why I say that is because Gene laid out, and then John Papuchas confirmed it later, that first year they were going very, very base. They weren't doing much of anything that was fancy. And it worked throughout the course of the season until they started playing better teams like Clemson and Baylor, and they just had no counters. But what happens after that, they added another layer to the defense. And so 2016, they were a little bit more advanced. The plan was in the third year to add everything in and to beef up that scheme. And JP talked about that quite a bit. Um, even with Gene leaving, leaving, JP was like, yeah, you know, all these things we'd already planned, we're going to continue to do that. And, of course, things didn't work out with injuries and those kind of things. So I think more than anything, that's probably what he was getting at. Not so much like a full-scale schematic change, just adding some more things and being able to be more diverse in fronts and those kind of things. Um, does he carry that forward five years out of the game, or does he start doing some of the things that Georgia does, which who also did some things that Georgia does, Jason? Jay Bateman. And Jay this Bateman. is actually one of the benefits of Bateman is that this group has had some – of the things that he was wanting to add in before he should not have to start this group, especially talent wise. You mentioned they're getting all of these guys as sophomores and juniors. Now they've actually got talent. You can actually run more than cover two or Tampa two every, you know, 80% of the game now with that group. So they should be at least a year ahead on that. Right. And as, as Jason laid out earlier, with Charlton actually having coached recently and being the defensive coordinator in the big 10 last year, he's already played with some of these schematic changes. And so I think that will help Gene evolve his defense even more from away from what the Butch Davis era, that, that crowd wanted to do, right? You basically, you run a 4-3, you're so good up front, as Butch used to say, you could do whatever you want to do in the back. It doesn't matter because your front four is so good. We're kind of past those days a little bit, uh, but I think Charlton Warren will really help Gene in kind of mapping out the best way forward. And, and some two. of that's terminology, by the way. Some of that is just having the terminology for certain ways of, of teaching it or coaching it for, you know, maybe a position drops here. Or you've got certain things. Some of that helps there. And, and Warren's already going to have had that built onto the framework that he had coached with Chiswick already to do that. So this is native stuff in there. So that's where the Warren hire, like you said, is super important. I was just going to say, for those that don't follow Auburn football as close as closely as some on this chat might, um, Gene's four recruiting classes when he was at Auburn from 2009 to 2012 were 23rd, 6th, 5th, and 11th. So pretty comparable to what he's getting right now. What a bum. 23rd, man. That is so like Well, Max, I mean, Max 30th, 14th, 14th, 8th. <laughs> and yes, one of those guys in those recruiting, recruiting classes was Cam Newton, who would have probably gotten his team to the top five with on almost any team in the country. But still, maybe this, that's the, the only best, point I had. Maybe the so, best college quarterback of all time for one season. <laughs> so how about this? Gene Chizik won two titles, and his quarterbacks were Vince Young and – Cam Thomas Cam Newton. Yeah. <laughs> and and now either Drake May or Jacoby Criswell. 
There you go. There you go. Well, maybe he's just a magnet for good quarterback play. You know, I see uh, that bit. I see that bit. That is uh that is quite interesting. Who who are your quarterbacks? Uh just some dude named Vince Young, some dude named Cam Newton. They were all right. <laughs> let, let me uh let me ask a, a question and I'll start with Vip. What what position group, what player benefits the most from these two hires? And I'll give Jason, Greg, and Buck an opportunity to think about it while Vip goes first. The the position group I'm most excited to see Chiswick work with would be, um, I would say the safeties and like the safeties and like that nickelback position where I think it's kind of been talked about like Rara Dilworth being a potential name for Coach Chiswick and uh, a nickelback type spot, but also watching a player like Jaquarius Conley in in this system in year three where you know. Going into this year, Jaquarius Conley has always been my favorite player to watch on this Carolina defense because I think when you're watching a game like the Georgia-Alabama game and you're trying to mentally picture, you know, how does Carolina stack up to this, Conley has the the physicality and the tools to be somebody who you're like, oh, yeah, I could see him playing in that game where it's like it's the list is really like Conley, Downs, and Howell for like who kind of would – translate to that type of game I, I think somebody like miles murphy is probably a fringe guy for some of those teams but when you're looking at george's defensive line it's it's a it's a whole different level where I, he i don't think he's getting in that rotation maybe maybe he's cracking the bama rotation but in terms of like the eye tests and getting off the bus first it's somebody like jaquarius conley so I'm I'm excited to see him kind of take this next step in the defense when he does come back uh, fully healthy. Did you see the Georgia defensive tackle highlight where he he's on the pass rush, the the, the completion is made on like a hitched route, and then he makes the tackle like 45 yards downfield. Yeah, yeah. And he comes oh. in, he comes in so hard where it looks like he might even punch the ball out. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's one of those where you go, wow. Well, you want to know the difference between national championship teams and everybody else is when you have a defensive tackle doing that stuff. Yeah, oh y'all mentioned the difference in walk-on and scholarship players in practice. Um, I was thinking about watching somebody in the chat ask about the national championship game. I'm, I'm watching those guys, whether it's Bama or Georgia, and it's just them dudes are different. And there is a large, large gap between everybody. Uh, but when, who been, who I'll come to I'll get to you, Jason. Think keep, continue to think about who benefits most and nine to, five stars on their defense, Georgia. Uh, Jordan Davis was like three of them himself. Uh, well, he was a three star. So they've got nine five stars and, and Jordan, Jordan Davis. <laughs> and he's from you know, two hours from Chapel Hill. Buck, who benefits Tyler the most Creek. on this defensive side? Uh, just to be different from uh, Taylor, I'm going to go with a D-line. Uh, because yeah, I, there are several really good options for – if he's going to go um, – I think we can safely assume he's going to go with an even front. Uh, which is going to mean two defensive ends. 
And, you know, I, I think uh, Kamen Rucker is going to eat in this offense. Um, you give him one gap, you got one job, rush the passer. He's, and, you know, I think one thing that probably not everybody thinks about, and I don't, I'm just going on what um, coaches talk about is uh, the splits from an outside linebacker to the quarterback, the, the lateral uh, distance on the line from the outside linebacker coming in on the quarterback is a step or so further than the defensive end. Uh, that's one of the reasons why. Uh, Mike Leach liked to have wide splits on his offensive line um, was to force the defensive ends to come out uh, at a further uh, distance than it's a step. I mean, we're talking about a game of inches, that's, but that's just one of the things that gets talked about um, by coaches. But anyway, uh, Cayman Rucker, it's time for Des Evans to show something on the other side. Uh, Telling me. Uh, so, I mean, did he have a sack last year? No. Not. Well, he, he embarrassed you based on your prediction earlier on in the season, didn't he, Gregory? I he mean, had the same as Gregory, actually. Yeah. Yeah. He had as many tackles and as I'm, Wanda. And I'm 5'8", 175 pounds. Yeah. yeah, but didn't you predict like something like crazy, like double digits? I predicted you, 10. You, double digits, yeah, yeah. yeah. Double digits. <laughs> So you, you're you're humiliated. This is a, a, a phenomenon you'll experience in the rest of your career covering sports. Is that when you uh, you hype a guy to the to the sky, and he disappoints your expectations, the next year he's going to be the biggest bum you ever laid your eyes on. Uh, you're going to take it out on on him because your expectations were too high. So. Uh, <laughs> You can put that in your back pocket. Just nine um, off to Mon Fox. There you go. You only owe me $150 or something, Gregory. Interior-wise on a defensive line, how much better can he have it? I mean, he's got one cog in Miles Murphy already, and, and he can pick from about five other four- and five-star guys that are three, six, five, and 300 pounds. I mean – He's going to have some depth and some size on the interior of that line. And one thing that's um, he did not have the last time he was in Chapel Hill was that kind of defensive line. And he particularly did not have a player like Miles Murphy. Miles Murphy had four sacks and what, nine tackles for loss last year from a defense interior defensive line position. Uh, he was like second or third on the team in those categories. He, he can push the interior of uh, the line from the defensive tackle spot better than anybody that uh, Chiswick had last time he was in Chapel Hill, for sure. And, um, you know, there are some other guys there that can eat. You know, uh, Javari Ritzy. Uh, let's see what Keyshawn Silver can do. Uh, how about uh, Kendrick Bigley Jones? You know, several of those Travis, guys. Travis Shaw, Shaw. You know, you know. Um, it, he's going to have a lot to pick from on that defensive line and, you know, guys like Rucker, he's just got one gap to worry about. He, he doesn't, he's not a two gap player anymore. He, all he's got to do is rush past. So I think that's the, 
the area where there's the most talent um, on this defensive roster and uh, the place where the most progress could be made in a single year on the team. Yeah, we saw Mark, what- You completely read my mind, by the way. My two an- my answers were the D-line, Cayman Rucker, and Javari Ritzy. So. Good. I'll skip you then, Gregory, um, since you gave you quick responses. <laughs> the, uh, the, the defensive line is where I, I believe that the most change needs to be made simply because watch the national championship games and see how important having dudes that can make plays on the defensive line matter. Greg, I'm going to make Jason wait a little longer. Give me somebody on this defense that will benefit the most from Charlton Warren and Gene Chizik's arrival. You can't call out the defensive line. You can't uh, take Taylor's uh, either. So we're narrowing the, the, the pool here. Um, you got like three comments. guys to choose from. I feel like uh, – I feel like what I is need that, to, Tommy? You got to give him a choice. Okay, I feel like you got to to blow up the the strategy. You, you leave him. Oh well, I got to pick the cornerbacks now. Right. <laughs> I'm going with the cornerbacks. Hey, that's the you get first in line. You can pick whoever right. you want. So okay, I'll say cornerbacks is I've got to pick somebody. I think Warren coming in and having an influence and really aiding Dre Bly uh, will be beneficial. And I like the idea of of really getting the cornerbacks and the safeties and the nickels all in the same page, all in the same position group room, like Warren talked about. But then when you get out on the practice field, block and can work on individual technique with the players. I think that's going to be very beneficial for Tony Grimes, for Storm Duck, uh, for some of the younger guys. You know, DeAndre Boykins, I think, is a guy that can probably play multiple positions, including cornerback. Uh, but I do want to touch on the DL linebacker situation. And it kind of goes hand in hand with what, Buck and um, Taylor both talked about is if Gene goes more to an even front, goes more to kind of a four, three design, what you have is you have very few players at linebacker who have actually played rah, rah and power did not play much at all. You, John, you, you, John, Eugene Asante has left the program. Jeremiah Gummel is graduating and moving on. So you really have Cedric Gray at linebacker. And then if you look at kind of the defensive front, uh, as Buck said, there's a lot of people to choose from. The problem is there's a ton of people to choose from, which is great for Gene. It's not great for the players. Because there's a lot of guys like Chris Collins. Where does he play? If you're setting up a situation where, you know, Javari Ritzy, for example, I, I think he'll move out to defensive end. He's like an ideal defensive end with his quickness. Well, he had been inside. So that takes away one of the defensive end spots. Well, I, you know, Greg, uh, he's 285 pounds. Yeah. You know, if, if he has a ham sandwich before spring practice next year, he's going to be three bills and putting him on the defensive line. And maybe that'll work because he is very athletic, but you're pushing the envelope there in terms of, uh, size for a defensive end. Maybe. Greg beat me to it, though. I was going to say the same thing. I think Ritzy's probably going to play outside. But he is such a such a athletic freak. Um, I think he can handle that weight and play on the edge, um, especially when you're talking about guys like you know, Bingley Jones. Certainly, is going to be a tackle. Uh, Hester's a tackle. Jaleel Taylor's a tackle. Uh, Travis Shaw clearly is a tackle. Murphy's a tackle. 
there's a lot of bodies there. And then if we're talking about moving Des Evans to defensive end, which I think would be a good thing for him. I mean, what do you do with Ethan West, right? What do you do with Chris Collins? Uh, I mean, Rucker, yeah, you could put him at defensive end. But I think what really happens in saying all that is because you don't have much experienced talent at linebacker, you got Noah Taylor now. I mean, he'll probably play defensive end, although he could play linebacker. Uh, but that just screams to create kind of a hybrid role uh, at nickel that you can use. And Jacurus Conley's perfect for that. Rara is perfect for that. Um, so I really think if they scheme this around personnel, those are two guys, like Taylor said, who can really thrive because there's a unique position that's a necessity for this team next year, in my opinion. With the weight gone, is it just thick linebackers cross defensive line? Yes. Cool. Yeah. Instead, you know, of, one guy that nobody mentioned in the end. back in the secondary safety position is uh, Giovanni Biggers. Um, arguably played better than any safety we had last year. That may have been because Conley was hurt, but um, he, he definitely was more productive overall and graded out higher on PFF than any of the rest of the safeties did. So, yeah, there, there is a potential there for North Carolina, if they wanted to, to go to a three-safety um, situation uh, where you have a middle safety on the field um, at times. I don't see it as a base package, but something that they can work in as a sub-package. Uh, it just depends on how wild and crazy Gene Chizik wants to get. But I don't see Gene Chizik as a wild and crazy guy. So uh, we're just going to have to wait and see how spring practice unfolds before we can say too much and how much of that is going to actually be on uh, display for the public is uh, an open question. So here's the thing, to, to Buck's point right there, Gene has had an incredible amount of success in his career as a defensive coordinator. Does he just blow all that up just because the trends in the college game are shifting? There's not many coaches who just scrap everything that they've done and have had a lot of success with just to kind of be current. So I expect some changes, but I think Buck's exactly right that Gene's going to do what he does. And uh, he may make some changes, but I don't think they'll be dramatic. That's pretty much what he said today, right? About um, when he was asked about his last five years and everything he was watching and whatnot, like he took in the changes, but he's still going to like his base is the foundation of his defense is still going to be what he knows and is comfortable with. And then he's going to listen to everyone else, especially what he's done. What I thought was most interesting from his press conference today was when he was talking about his off seasons, when there wasn't any football on, he was basically still clinicking with people on the offensive and defensive side. Um, just kind of working towards a return at some point. So I, 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 yeah, talked about leaving his foundations and then adding in elements that have changed over time, which might just be a, some plays, but not necessarily the, his base defense. I think you adapt or you go out to pasture. So I think he's going to change, but um, not too much. Like Buck said, Jason, we pretty much covered everybody who will benefit from their response or from Chiswick and Warren's uh, arrival. Toss out some names maybe we hadn't heard on that, but also why wouldn't – and this is a structural thing. Why, why wouldn't the defensive backfield all be in the same room? Why wouldn't the defensive line all be in the same room? It just seems like it makes too much sense for me 
for that to be the case where it has not been the case for Carolina for the last three years. Yeah. It's usually not the case at most programs. Uh, you know, one, one reason is because you get more individual attention when you're in one room with a smaller position group. And the thing is when you're coaching what defensive tackles have to do versus what defensive ends have to do, you know, the defensive tackle, it helps to know in some sense what he's got to do, but that's time lost that is focused on what you're having to do out here as opposed to in here. And that guy who's working in here all the time is not, he's not getting that attention. Here's, you know, how you're supposed to fill this. Here's how you're supposed to call this from the linebacker spot. Well, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't cohere with other position groups. So usually you're going over, you know, players are not coaches, right? Players by and large don't have to know, like as a wide receiver, I don't have to know what the running back's job is, right? When I learn the play, I don't learn like, okay, you know, pass 44 takeoff. Well, I've got a takeoff. I know that that's the part that I need to know. I need to know that, you know, I line up here, I'm on the line and I run a takeoff and here's my rules for that and all that. And that's what we're going to focus on. But the running back has to know pass 44 means, you know, sprint draw play action or whatever. Right. And so that's communicating something completely different. And so you take those guys and put them in different rooms for when you're covering those things and when you're covering the technique specific to it. And that's, that's the main reason why. Um, I do think that when, that for certain positions scheme wise, it makes sense to put them together in the film room when you're not doing as much technique stuff or when there's some carryover that can help in terms of communication. So especially corners and safeties and, and that sort of thing, I think it helps to have all those guys in the room together. It helps to have two coaches in there because those guys tend to, you know, clown around a little bit more than some of the other position groups, but that um, that's why. Um, now, one thing I do want to clarify is the defensive ends that's just a, a name change outside linebackers and Jay Bateman's defense are defensive ends, right? That it's not like they had like, Oh, wow. You're going to get a position change for Des Lawrence. He's now going to go from an outside linebacker to a defensive end. It's literally the same position <laughs> that he's playing. He's the defensive end. It's just, they changed the name of it in the defense. So, you know, the question is whether you're going to move a guy like Lawrence say to the big end, in a, in, a, in a given scheme or keep him at a rush end, which is a little closer to the, the responsibilities that he had. But, you know, that's, that's something to, to keep in mind is, you know, especially when they were in, uh, when they were in even fronts, which is about 40% of the time or so, maybe a little more than that under, uh, under Bateman, they were in even stuff a lot. Those guys were defensive ends, just flat out. That's what they were. Um, now, Ritzy, you, you mentioned, you know, he's going to be a pretty big end if he's moved to end. Don't forget guys like Quentin Couples. Quentin Couples was pretty successful at 290 pounds on the defensive line, right? Those guys can really make a difference. If you can get a 290-pound guy who can actually do stuff at the end and, and not be a liability quickness-wise, that's a big advantage. So I, I agree, though. I mean, I actually I, – I agree with Buck that the first place my mind went was defensive line and specifically the edge guys – uh, because I think they're going to turn them loose a little bit more in terms of uh, when you do more one gap. And I think they will. I don't think it's going to be all the time four guys with their hand in the dirt. I think you're going to see a hybrid guy on this on this defense. And that gets to your question, Greg. What do you do with a guy like Chris Collins? I think they're going to have a rush end where Chris Collins, some of those 
sort of tweener defensive end types are going to line up. And those guys are going to be in that kind of stand up rush end kind of position in a typical odd or in a typical even front. That's what Warren did at, at IU. And it fits perfectly well into everything else that Chiswick does. And in terms of personnel, it would make sense for them to do a lot of that. So I think those guys, and in particular, the defensive tackles are going to have more opportunity to make some plays coming up the field because they're going to be in a, they're going to be one gapping more consistently than, than what they were. Uh, but one thing that hasn't been mentioned and, and, and Greg, you mentioned the linebackers are not having played a whole lot. I will say this Bateman's scheme was in general, not that complex overall, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things and coverages and all that. I mean, they didn't call complex stuff because they really didn't feel like they could, uh, but they, you know, they were calling a lot of rip Liz, things like that. That's standard stuff, but up front, two gapping is harder on the linebackers because you do have to react. You have to respond to what you see in front of you just a little bit more. So if you, if you see the guy in front of you, who's got a two gap responsibility and he gets turned one way, then you attack that hole in, in space quickly. If he gets turned the other way, then, you know, that can change that. In a standard one gap scheme, linebackers are turned loose. You have that gap. And if somebody pulls, that moves to that gap, but you just get downhill. And so that should quicken the process just a little bit for some of the younger linebackers. I think that may help them a little bit initially. Um, so that's that's one group that that I think may, at least initially, uh, shine just a little bit more more easily uh, as things as things stand, especially given the how things looked with that unit last year that that unit had a long way to go and i think what they're going to do in terms of simplifying what's in front of them in terms of what they're going to see from from the defensive line i think will help the linebackers i think they may actually be the group that benefits the most quick point to build off of uh one of jason's points too where he mentioned how the defense doesn't have to necessarily know what everybody is doing and speaking from experience from when chiswick was in chapel hill the first time from talking with the defensive players, like the thing that kind of separated Chiswick from previous coaches where it was instead of guys just going out there and memorizing a playbook, coach Chiswick had them actually understanding football where Shaq compared it to like a graduate assist, a graduate student going back and like learning their ABCs where when a coach calls a play, Shaq all of a sudden, is understanding why the coach is calling a certain play and he's able to play out there thinking two to three steps ahead. And I think that was another point coach Chizik mentioned in, in his press conference today that probably impressed a lot of people where if a player is a four or five speed off the field, he wants them playing like a four or five speed on the field where it's not like this guy's out here thinking and, you know, you start to have that confusion where coach Chizik, it, it's something he always says. He said uh, the nuts and bolts today in the press conference. And I don't think it's a, a coincidence that Shaq used that same exact phrase when talking <laughs> about it, where it's like, it's something you've heard so much in the meeting rooms that it's, it's now just second nature for Shaq when he is describing, you know, what kind of made coach Chizik su successful his first tenure in Chapel Hill. And that's a huge deal. That is a huge deal. If they can get those guys to understand so that they're processing before they actually see it, that does, that makes a huge difference. 
Greg, how often did uh, Gene use the word catastrophic for that to trigger AJ's AJ's memory so much? Was well, it, it had to have been a lot, right? The, the funny thing is, is you kind of build upon it, right? Because Larry Fedora was all about explosive plays. Uh, it was like, like one was, of the first stories I did was about his love of explosive plays. Oh, right. And like <laughs> whenever he first came in, he sat down with us and was like, yeah, this is so important. If we get this many a game, you know, we'll be able, we'll be clicking offensively, blah, blah, blah. And so we had just heard about explosive plays over and over again. And then Gene shows up and it's not just explosive plays, it's catastrophic plays. Um, and we all just kind of got a kick out of that. So it, it, it has, it, it, it sticks in our mind. And I've, I've thought the same thing when he came back. I was like, all right, we're going to start hearing about catastrophic plays again. And uh, that's funny that, that Andrew brought that up first thing. <laughs> Explosive on offense, catastrophic on defense. No, there's still – there's the explosive plays work on both sides of the field. <laughs> catastrophic, I think, I think Gene termed them, and I'll have to ask him again in the, the weeks to come. But I think it was like 40-plus yards was considered a catastrophic. Explosive plays – is I think it's 16 for a pass and 12 for a run. I believe that's what it is. Interesting take. Uh, we will talk a lot more about Gene Chiswick, Charlton Warren's return to Chapel Hill as we get closer to spring ball. It's going to be interesting. I, a couple of things I'll be watching. Transfer portal in and out and how the, the scheme or approach changes as spring comes around. Um, I'm going to take a short break, talk about Johnny T-Shirt, johnnytshirt.com. They are great friends of Inside Carolina and great friends of you, the subscriber. You need to be a premium subscriber. You get 10% off your order. Even on non-holidays, you can Woo! get your Inside Carolina gear uh, or you can get your Johnny T-Shirt gear. They support us all through the year. We need to support them all through the year, either on Franklin Street or online, take care of them. Let national guys pay the bills. We'll be right back with On The Beat Live. It's about 9 o'clock Eastern. We've got a little offense to talk about. We're not done yet. We'll be right back after the break. It's the NFL offseason, but on Pick 6, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, the football season never stops. Host Will Brinson, John Breach, and Tyler Sullivan are joined by analysts like Brady Quinn, Leslie Ducible, Katie Mox, and R.J. White to keep you in the loop on everything happening around the league. Whether it's free agents signing with new teams, the all-important NFL draft, or schedule release day, Pick 6 has you covered. As the face of the league changes with every team move and player pickup this spring, Pick 6 is a must Listen, download, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and anywhere podcasts are found. All right, boys, we're back. It's on the beat live, InsightCarolina.com, JohnnyT-Shirt.com, Gregory Hall, Man in the Wheels, Taylor Vipless, Jason Staples, Greg Barnes, and, of course, El Jefe, Buck Sanders. Buck, one thing that was surprising to me, and I want to get your thoughts, is the offensive staff stayed intact at least currently, unless anybody decides to leave on their own free will and volition. Um, were you surprised by that? And why or why not? I would think the, the answer to that question is, yes, I'm a little surprised. Uh, I would think there would have been at least one change. Uh, and I think everybody that in this panel and everybody listening at home could be able to guess who that one change would be that I might uh, be in favor of. But the thing, the thing that I 
I guess, if you're going to draw any consolation at all from no changes on the offense, if you want to justify that or defend it, you would say the offense has been pretty good the last three years. Uh, Record setting, uh, for example, in 2019 and most of 2020, I think it took a step back this year for good reasons that had nothing to do with the or little to do with the uh, position coach that we everybody has in mind, which is offensive line coach. Uh, the losses that they had from uh, 20 to 21 had to do in the wide receivers room and running back room, and North Carolina felt it in both places. They didn't have that. Um, that guy who can truck defenders uh, like Javante Williams. Uh, nobody was making any business decisions too often, uh, you know, in the against North Carolina this past year, uh, where they routinely did when they were deciding whether to try to tackle Javante Williams or not. Rob receiver room. Uh, I don't think I have to spell it out too much. They had Josh Downs and not a lot more. Um, they had guys too many drops, too many uh, instances where they weren't able to create separation. Uh, I think uh, it was noble of how to run the ball as much as he did uh, to try to you know make something out of the offense. But that's not how Howell, in all honesty, should have been spending his senior or his last campaign at North Carolina. Um, he should be dropping dimes down the field for six is, is how he, that should have gone, but it didn't happen. Uh, they had Josh downs, a little bit of play here and there from other guys. Um, who are we going to fire there? Or are we going to fire Lonnie Galloway? I don't think so. Frank Porter. No, I don't think we're going to do that either. Um, Phil Longo. Nope. So, in some ways, the criticism of keeping the offensive line, offensive staff intact, not firing the offensive line coach, is the feeling that it was six and seven. You got somebody's got to be the scapegoat, and I think they already have a couple of scapegoats uh, that have been shown the door. So um, make of that what you will. I, I think it's probably true that uh, maybe that Stacy Searles has got one year left in him uh, at North Carolina if he doesn't produce better on the offensive line this year. That's where I'd leave that. Tommy, I would just add that um, I don't know that any changes would have been made if it was left up to Mac Holy on either side of the ball. Uh, just because uh, he, let's go. I, mean, I, just, I just think he liked, I like, he likes the guys that he has. Um, and I think there's some blemishes there, but uh, he had faith in, in all of them. And uh, clearly there are things that have to be corrected. Mac knows that for sure. Um, but he brought these guys in cause he trusts them and they're his guys. And uh, I just think, 
I think he has faith in Stacy. They they go back a long ways, and um, it's going to take more than just a a bad year. And granted, we could talk about what happened last year and whether or not Javante and Michael Carter covered up a lot of the blemishes as well as Diami. Um, but I, I just think Mac felt comfortable, and there'll be some things done this spring uh, that will that are that's geared to helping continuity and making sure everybody's on the same page on the offensive staff. Same thing will take place on the defense, defensive side. Uh, but Mac, Mac has his guys and he's going to ride with them. Greg, when speaking about that, I mean, let's be honest. Uh, you had another thousand yard back. You had a thousand yard receiver. Um, my question, and I've seen it on the message board is we, we talked about how many yards Carolina averaged rushing the football and, uh, the success they had and somebody brought up the fact that how many of those rushing yards were because Sam Howell running for his life um, and got 850 or whatever he ended up with. I mean, and I know Jason's been outspoken and Mike Ingersoll as well, frankly, on the issues of across the offensive line that did not directly address the success that Carolina's rushing game had, but the, the issues, the deeper issues and technique and those things. Is that what Mac really relied on here? Is that, hey, we were you know, ranked whatever in offense. We, we had 1,000-yard back and all these, all these positives. I mean, what was the mindset there, do you think? Or was it as simple as like you just said? He likes what he has. He trusts them. And he wants to ride with them. I think that's a big part of it. I mean, he has shown a, a willingness to make moves if he deems them necessary. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, Scott Boone's really about the only guy he fired, right? I mean, Javon DeWitt uh, was let go because they needed to make space for Charlton Warren. But everybody else pretty much departed uh, on their own, if you want to put it that way. So – he, again, he, he likes what he's got. There's not a lot of pressure there for him to make moves. Um, and you can make a case like he did today. I mean, as Buck said, the offense has been good. And we can talk about, yeah, well, the reason that the running game was so good is because Sam scrambled so well. Okay, sure. But we're also looking at, at it from a team-specific angle, right? I mean, if you go to Florida State, Jason kind of gives us a rundown of why their stats maybe look better than what they actually were. Or we can go to any other school around the country, and there's always going to be, yeah, buts or maybes involved. Um, and so all we can really do from a national perspective or from a conference perspective is just look at the stats. And if we're just looking at the stats, Carolina's had a lot of success. Now, they haven't been very good in the red zone. They haven't been very good in, in – third down conversion, especially this year. Phil Longo, that's something he's got to address. Uh, the big story last year was, hey, you know, they're finally good in the red zone. First time in four years or five years as a power five coordinator that he's had success. Well, you lose Javante, you lose Michael Carter, all of a sudden we're back to North Carolina in the bottom half of the, the national standings and red zone touchdown percentage. So those are things that have to be addressed. And how much of that is specifically on the offensive line coach? Um, so I, I get the frustration and the fact that the team struggled in losses offensively, uh, and all these kind of things. 
and I, I can't speak to the technical aspect of it. I mean, Jason and, and Mike Ingersoll, I think, have, have laid that out quite well this season. Um, but, you know, it just kind of is what it is. Mac, Mac likes what he's got, and he's willing to roll with him. Jason, chime in here. I, I mean, you've been pretty vocal about the technique issues and all that. Um, was that cause, or could that have been used for cause to make a change there? And and how does the offense look next year um, without a proven running back, even though Tyson Chandler was uh, no Javante or Michael Carter? He was pretty doggone good when he got going. And Sam Howe is the generational quarterback. Those guys aren't walking through the door. So could it have been used as cause? Yes, I think absolutely. The the technique issues that we saw across the front would absolutely be cause. Does that mean it was the right decision? That's a harder question because I mean, not only is it do you have to look at the at the uh, product on the field with the guy that you have, but you have to also evaluate who you could get to replace him. And that's something a lot of people don't consider. And actually an interesting thing right now, uh, Greg, you mentioned at Florida state, uh, Florida state's going through a similar thing with their wide receivers coach. Who's, you know, guy I've known, you know, he helped me learn how to play receiver when he was an outgoing player and I was an incoming player years ago. So, I mean, go a long way back, but you know, there's been some dissatisfaction with his receiving group and in particular with recruiting he's not landed some recruits you know he's, he's come up short a lot and there's some feeling that they need to upgrade that that position but and and they tried to by the way they tried to actually hire Jawan Sider as the running backs coach and then move their running backs coach to wide receiver because their running backs coach has been a receivers coach before and they felt like that would be an upgrade well Sider turned him down well here's the problem they're not going to fire Ron Dugans and let him go if they can't replace him with somebody better so you're always, you know, kind of evaluating on your coaching staff. Is this the best guy? It's not necessarily, is this the best guy at this position? Is it, it's, is this the best guy that I can get at this institution this year? So that's something that you have to consider also. The other thing that none of us have really seen adequately enough to be able to make this kind of decision is I don't know what the younger guys look like technique wise. It's entirely possible that Stacy, I mean, Stacy Searles has been coaching offensive line a long, long time, right? It's not like he doesn't know offensive line technique. He does. It's entirely possible though, that with a couple of the older guys on the, on the offensive line, that they just stopped listening, that they like, look, I'm going to be starting and, you know, I'm going to do things my way. Maybe. And if they didn't have the guys who are ready and, and, you know, both talented and, and, and developed enough to, to take their jobs, well, that's that. It's entirely possible that next year we see some rising, you know, redshirts, sophomores and juniors and so on that suddenly come in and you're like, oh, wow, yeah, that's the technique we all wanted. <laughs> so that's something that Matt gets to see in practice every day that we don't. So you know, yeah, I think if if this next year you see a bunch of fundamental problems on the offensive line that are unable to do the basic level things that you expect an offensive line to do, then at that point, you really have to make some very hard decisions there. 
But it's entirely possible that that's not what we see with a younger group, with guys that maybe have been listening harder, that have been hungrier, that, you know, I, who knows? So this does become a bit of a wait and see year for me on that, on that, uh, at that position. I want to see what things look like, look like in the spring, what, what little we're going to be able to see. But that's, that's kind of where I fall in on it. And I, I kind of understand why those decisions might get made where, in the ways that fans don't expect. One other thing I would throw in here, Tommy, if I could, is uh, Mac Brown is also a coach who believes in um, making ultimatums. Uh, he did that with Carl Torbush uh, back in the day. After the uh, 94 Sun Bowl, I think, uh, was it Priest Holmes uh, ran for about 560 yards in the fourth quarter. Um, Mac went to, to uh, Carl Torbush and said, look, you, you've got to come up with a more aggressive, more uh, focused defense. You got to do better or you're going to be finding another, you're going to have to find another job next year. Um, we, we know that occurred. Um, we heard it at the time when it did happen and Mac, I think actually wrote about it, uh, somewhere when, uh, he was asked about it and, and confirmed that, yeah, that's what happened. I, I told Carl that, you know, his defense had to get better or he was going to be looking for another job the following year. Now, does that make anybody feel better about the situation that, uh, North Carolina finds itself on the offensive line? And had it been somebody besides Mac Brown, um, somebody a little bit more uh, quick on the trigger, Searles might be looking for a job this year. And I'm not saying that would have been the wrong move to make. I mean, we've got to be honest about it. I mean, you could make the case that the same group of starters, basically, for three years didn't improve over three years, and they should. So, uh, I get the frustration. I get the um, people saying, you know, this is a no-brainer. He should have done it. He should have pulled the trigger. I get it. I get your frustration. And I think there are people here that are frustrated as well. So we'll see how it all shakes out this past coming year. Um, that's, at this point, all we could do. I agree. Uh, realistic Carolina fans think 2023 <laughs> – well, we've been saying that for a long time at the tar pit and insidecarolina.com. No, I think uh, I think somebody on the chat said that uh, this year is the year that we find out um, what the offensive line is made of, and Searles is on the clock, and we'll see what happens. Football, that's a wrap. We'll do plenty more Inside Carolina Live on Saturday at 10 a.m. WCHL streaming. Uh, Gregory Hall and I will be manning the studio as Joey Powell is taking the family on vacation. Hopefully have some of these guys join, but, uh, and some special guests on that show. We'll talk more about Charlton Warren, Gene Chiswick and their arrival in Chapel Hill. But gentlemen, I am going to do a couple things. One, I'm going to transition at 921 Eastern time to basketball, Carolina basketball, been off for a week after winning in Chapel Hill against Virginia. And I'm going to ask Buck Sanders. If he can give me a basketball take 
Um, and then, Buck, you can dip out if you'd like, or you can stick around. Jason Staples loves to participate in the basketball talk. Buck, tell me what you think about North Carolina basketball. We have not heard your take um, at all this year, so give it to me. Gregor, you're muting everybody, and it's messing us up. <laughs> my bad, my bad. <laughs> you're doing great, Gregory. Hang in there, buddy. Um, you know, I love the fact that uh, – they beat Virginia, and I don't think we've talked enough about the fact that North Carolina basketball had lost seven straight to Virginia before that last win. Um, so, hey, uh, let's celebrate that. And, you know, as far as uh, any other take I might have, let uh, Manic shoot it from three more often. You know, let, you know I like seeing uh, the big guy take the, uh, the deep shots. That's my take, and I'm out. That is uh, nailed it, uh, Buck. I appreciate it. You drop out, Buck Sanders, of course, president of Minnesota Carolina, and the the El Jefe of us. Uh, we do what Buck says we do, and we keep the man happy. Buck, thanks for joining us, my man. Later, guys. Taylor, I'm going to jump into you first on basketball, um, simply because your podcast with uh, Justin Jackson is up and uh, it's always interesting to hear from a former guy that played such an important role. Um, tease that conversation a little bit for those of uh, those of our listeners that are on this and haven't heard it, but also give me your take. This North Carolina basketball team has done some good things. Uh, the bottom line is, and I think we'd all agree here and especially uh, me, because I love a good big man, is Armando Baycott cannot touch it enough on the offensive end from North Carolina. Go, Taylor. Yeah, the, the main thing with this North Carolina team that we talked about is that they've kind of had the highs and the lows that you would kind pull of your, expect. Pull your mic closer, Taylor. Yeah, the, the main thing we talked about this season is that Carolina has had a lot of highs and lows, but – the, the lows for this team are really, really low. Like when they lost to Kentucky, when they lose to Notre Dame, um, when they lose to Tennessee, but that this team, when they do play, like they understand their identity and their identity should be Armando Baycott is a lot better than a lot of big guys that he's going up against that this team can be really good. And they, they do have the talent to compete in uh, a pretty down year for the ACC where there's four teams right now with one, one loss. It's like Miami, Notre Dame, Duke, and North Carolina. So on paper, Carolina is right in the mix with all the other teams. And I think the, one of the most interesting conversations me and Justin had this week was like, if I told you this player was going to have their best game, which player would that be for Carolina to kind of have the best chance to win? Because I think the gut reaction is somebody like Armando Baycott, where you see him go for like 27 points and 21 rebounds. But at the same time, you could make the argument for somebody like Caleb Love, where when everything is going for Caleb Love, he's a completely different basketball player. And that was one of the things I talked about with Justin, where if Caleb Love's shot's not falling, his defensive efforts off. He's not really creating for people and the whole team just kind of goes and um, goes with Caleb love. So that's why we were kind of making the argument for Caleb love being 
that player for North Carolina. And I think it's always interesting talking with Justin and hearing like his perspective from teams, because he talked about um, when he was up, when he was on the team, his sophomore season, Bryce Johnson was having such a great year. And even, even then, even a team that went to the final four, they had times where they didn't give the ball to Bryce as much or the year before when Marcus came off uh that's such such a great sophomore season. It was interesting hearing kind of his perspective of Coach Davis coming in the locker room at the time and pointing at somebody like Marcus and being like, "You see that guy over there? He's a pretty good player. Let's let's get him more shots." And it's it's a really interesting um, perspective to get behind the locker room um, with somebody like Justin Jackson. And I think the the other point with somebody like Caleb Love, where he could kind of draw inspiration from, it's somebody like Joel Berry, where it did not matter whatsoever how Joel Berry's offensive night was going. He was going to be a dog on the defensive side of the ball. And I think that's something that comes with maturity. And that's something that Justin was really harping on too, where we've seen the, we've seen Caleb love make a pretty substantial leap from his freshman to sophomore year, but there's still so much more room for him to grow. And I think that's part of the, uh, the exciting part with college basketball, knowing that, these are 18, 19 year old players, but they do have so much potential. Greg, that's an interesting dynamic because, um, you know, we hammered Bryce, we hammered, hammered Kennedy Meeks forever. Um, and, and it took to those guys were juniors and seniors to get the maturity to play hard, even if they weren't individually playing well. And, and to Taylor's point, to Justin Jackson's point, Caleb's not quite there yet, um, but does he hold the key to this team's success? Baycott clearly needs to touch it 100 times. Uh, I mean, he needs to touch it every time down court. It needs to go through Baycott every single time down court for Carolina to be successful. But is Caleb Love, Greg, in your opinion, the guy for this team that has to be good for Carolina to be good and for Carolina to be as good as – they can be, because quite frankly, when they're on, I think they're one of the best teams in the country. When they're off, they're probably one of the worst teams in the country, and I think it relies on, frankly, Caleb's mood. I think that's fair. Um, Gregory and I had this conversation when we were watching the debacle in, in South Bend. Uh, where in a Caleb, tundra. Yeah, right. And Caleb acknowledged after the game that he just went into it. Um. That's a problem. Now, how much of that's maturity and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think to your point about Bryce and Kennedy, I, I think part of it's the one-and-done nature of the college game now. Uh, we expect these guys to be so good early because they're trying to jump. You know, and you know, the word coming in, with when Caleb came in last year, he wanted to be here one year and leave. And so if that's the goal, you've got to play to a standard. And he's still trying to figure out how to play to that standard game in and game out. And so people see the Notre Dame game and they get frustrated, even though Armando played great in that game. But then you see what he does against Virginia. You're like, well, why didn't he do that every time? And I think that's kind of the head-scratching thing for a lot of people watching this team. The fact that Armando has gotten to a point where he is delivering every single game is important. And if you go back to last year, and especially his freshman year, he'd play good for three or four games in a row, then he'd vanish and then he'd come back. He's starting to do it consistently every single game. So I don't want to say that you can count on him 
but we're pretty much at that point. And so, yes, is this North Carolina team good enough just to rely on Armando Baycott to be really good? No, they're not. They're good enough to beat some bad teams, of which there are many in the ACC. We can talk about that in a little bit. But for this team to take that next step and to be able to contend in the ACC and to be able to make a push in the NCAA tournament, it can't just be Armando. Caleb's that next guy because when he is on, he can be really good. So Hubert Davis has to figure out what the button is because it very much is inconsistent at this point in time. So against Virginia, it was Armando, obviously. I mean, he almost went for 30 and 20. Um, and Caleb decided to get hot from three, and he played great. And then the third guy was Brady Manick, who needs to be the consistent third guy for this team to do what it wants to do come March. Is it Brady? Is it Dawson? Can he recover from his concussion and be consistent enough? Is it RJ, right? Who needs to be that third guy that doesn't need to give him 20 like Brady did, but that just needs to be consistently there. Like not necessarily like even Caleb is still working towards that, obviously, but still the conversation is like, is it Caleb? Is it Mondo? Well, who's number three, who needs to be there consistently and can be there consistently night in and night out as the third guy. Does it need to be one person? Well, there you go. That's a good answer. Uh, it needs to be a third. Can it person. work like that, though? I think it can. Now, the question to me is, are you talking about offense? Or are you talking about defense? Or are you talking about both ways? Because I think one of the issues that this team really has to deal with is the is learning to learning to to play defense such that when you're not playing as well offensively, you jumpstart what you're able to do as a team with the, by compensating by playing that much that much better defensively and well, that's you know, that's the, the issue there that i think the that is caleb love's issue that's exactly caleb love's issue and the energy level on the defensive end tells you whether this team is going to win the game or not yeah. essentially so when it comes down to the third player it's not so much about, you know, who the third scorer is going to be or who the third guy that is visible is going to be. The question is, can you find three, four, and five that are going to play with that level of deep, with the needed level of, of defensive intensity? And if Leaky could score. It's a no brainer. He's guy number three, but yeah, he can't obviously. score. And that's the issue on that, on that side of things. But he's still got to play because you've got to have the defensive side of things there. But they need a, a, a fourth and a fifth guy consistently to be there with that level of defensive attention. And, you know, Caleb Love needs to be 100% bought in, even when he's not playing well offensively, to be a stopper defensively. And if they do that, like you said, Tommy, that's the issue. If, 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 if they do that, then suddenly they become a team that nobody wants to play in, in, in March if, if they can get there. So based on that, it's Dawson then, because I think he possesses the highest ceiling on both ends of the floor to be a third guy. Does he, but, but does he have the same issue as Caleb has when he's not going well offensively? And RJ Davis did nothing against Virginia, if I remember correctly. That's not true. He had, four, he, he had four assists, zero turnovers. He had no points. That's my point. He did nothing offensively as far as scoring, but he still contributed. Gotcha. How did he play on the defensive end 
Kihei Clark didn't do much. And Kihei Clark's killed Carolina these last seven times they've played. Vip, is it Dawson Garcia? Is, is it – I just think whoever it – first of all, to Jason's point, they all five got to be committed on the defensive end because if they're not, it doesn't work. Then you end up getting Baycott in foul trouble because somebody didn't keep a guy in front. Who relies on their offense to play well on defense? I think Caleb definitely. Is is Dawson Garcia in that bunch? Vip, to your opinion, in your opinion, or or is it a is it you know where are we as far as what Carolina needs to happen on one end that positively affects the other end? Yeah, that third person. I would agree with um, Jason where it's, it's almost by committee at this point where if, if love is on and Baycott is on, that's almost, that's probably 40 plus points you're looking at right there. And if this Carolina team can hold teams around that, like 65 ish number, I'm pretty sure I saw a stat where Carolina, if Carolina holds their opponent under 65, they're, I'm pretty sure they're undefeated this season. So that seems to be Carolina's magic number if they could get to that point. But if I had to pick, you know, who that third option would be, and I'm not just picking him because I'm from New York and I I like to see New Yorkers prosper, it would be somebody like RJ Davis, because when I think of teams going really far in, in tournament play, it starts with the guards. College basketball is still such a, a guard heavy, um, sport where if your guards are on, it kind of sets the tone for the rest of the team. And then just volume wise, he's getting up a lot of threes. Um, he's shooting 41.7% from three, which is a crazy, a crazy number when you consider the turnaround that this North Carolina team had from last year, where as a team, they're ranked 261st in the country with three point percentage. And this year they're all the way up to seventh with with such a big turnaround from guys like love and guys like Davis with more spacing and better shot selection and whatever, whatever you think possibly contributes to that number increasing that drastically. Um, but I think, I think when Davis is on offensively, it just creates a ton more space for the rest of this team to operate guys like Baycott and Garcia in the post. And then you have somebody like Manic able to, run pick and pops with somebody like Davis or, or love. Eight and think, is the stats under 65 compared to three and four before Greg, you get going. But I think some of this conversation though speaks to some of the issues this team has. Um, and if, if you go back to the, you know, the 05 team, right. I mean, pretty much consistently you could rely on Jawad and Rashad and Ray and Marvin and Sean to pretty much have good games most of the time. Every once in a while, somebody have an off game. But for the most part, you were getting a consistent product from the group. 2009, well, 2008 too. But eight, eight and nine, all those guys played well most of the time. And if they lost, it was like, what happened? 2012 was kind of that way. 2017 with Justin. I think Justin was the leading scorer on that team. Uh, but, I mean, just think about the, the final four. Kennedy Meeks won a game for him. Joe Barry won a game for him. Um, Isaiah Hicks played very well for stretches. So they got contributions from a lot of different guys consistently. And while we're talking about Armando Baycott being that consistent presence, we can't really say the same about everybody else. And so when Manic has a good game 
and Caleb has a good game and Armando has a good game all at the same time, like they did against Virginia, they look really good. But when it's just one of those guys that's having a good game, you get a Notre Dame type game where they shouldn't lose, but somehow they're losing. And then you have other games where they're just not awake, anybody. And they get embarrassed by, you know, Kentucky and, and Tennessee. So um, I think this speaks to, I don't want to say a, less talent than maybe what we're accustomed to seeing. But I do think that's part of it, where this is just not the abundance of talent some of the great Carolina teams of recent memory have had. And therefore, it's going to take everybody playing at a more consistent level. And we just haven't seen that quite yet. Uh, that's a great point. When you talk about the elite Carolina or the very good to elite Carolina teams is to your point, Greg, that most every night you're going to get four or five guys that gave you their best, you know, out of a rotation. And with this Carolina team, um, if they can get three, three and a half, four guys giving their best, they can beat anybody. But if they get anything less than two, they're going to get spanked like they have so far. So, Gregory, I'll bring you in. I'll ask you this question. Dawson Garcia's been out. Curran Walton's been out. Um, and granted, they, they've been off this week, which I'm not sure having a week off is a good thing ever during the season. But is, is Manic a guy that needs to stay in the starting lineup? And we've talked about Curran Walton getting in the rhythm well, he, he seemed to get in one briefly. Um, how does Hubert Davis continue to work that? Because what's the schedule in, in a couple of weeks is what, five games in 11 days? Yep, with the uh, added of Virginia Tech. Yeah, so, I mean, these depth issues or these short bench issues are likely going to rear their heads. Uh, how, do, how, how are Garcia and Walton added back in and not affect what – seemingly good chemistry Carolina developed against Virginia. Yeah, it's tough because I, I go back to Adri Adrian Atkinson's the big five inside the numbers that he did recently where he was dissecting the advanced metrics of, well, I guess I don't know how advanced it is, pretty simple metric of the plus minus and who's on the floor. And overwhelmingly against all competition and against um, A tier a tier, B tier, which is kind of how Ken Palm breaks down opponents. The best five efficiently on the floor was RJ, Caleb, Leakey, Brady, and Armando. Now that has that was not the starting lineup um, until recently with Dawson going out. So it's it's tough because do you just throw him back in to the starting lineup right away? I, I'm going to go with no, but I can't speak to. We'll find out from Hubert tomorrow. Um, Dawson's level of conditioning and what he's been able to do and, and all of that. Um, so if that, if the week off, he hasn't been able to do much because of concussion protocol, then I, I don't think he starts Saturday night and he doesn't one, he doesn't need to, because of what you just said, the chemistry that this team has been able to develop with Brady out there. I mean, the, the ball movement was obvious, um, against Virginia and, um, Trevor Marks just did a film review on it. So it's not necessary, but yes, five games in 11 days is tough, especially when this team is obviously going to have five guys that could average over 30 minutes. Um, now with that, those numbers will go down with Dawson and Kerwin back. Um, but as far as the starting lineup, I don't really think it matters. Um, I think it's just 
being able to get those guys back in in a matter that helps. And I think if they can both play against Georgia Tech, that'll be that'll be good because it's a home game against a team that they already played before you can worry about the five games and 11 days stretch. You're muted. I didn't mute you that time. You sure you didn't? Yeah, you I, I was me. talking. Right. What you're I was talking. To, you're trying to shut down the man. I, I think starting lineup matters. I, I think it matters to Why? individual players. I think it matters to individual players. I don't motivation. think it matters. It doesn't game matter teams. for motivation. I for gave 16. Guys. I think it matters. And we'll see um, if it does matter and see if Hubert Davis thinks it matters when the roster is complete. Greg, ACC has been considered a five-bid league, um, if that. I can't see it. I mean, if the ACC gets five teams in the NCAA tournament, that means there's too many teams in the NCAA tournament. Um, we need to go back to the 32 back in the day. That would be – I would love for them to go back to 32. <laughs> when was it 32? That? Not too terribly long, long ago. Long before you were born. I've yeah, never yeah, heard yeah. of 32. Like 86. Even in 82. 86 is when it changed, I think. Yeah, Fit, don't I mean, laugh like that. You haven't either. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't, I don't remember it being 32 what, teams. Well, when UCLA used to win it, it was like eight all the time or eight or 16. So, 16. you know. How about but, this? Uh, when, I was, when I was 10, there was no three-point line, and the field was not 64. <laughs> Carolina had a bye in the first round in 82. I, believe, I still maybe. I still think going back to 32 would be the way to go. Just make the conference tournaments and conference races all that much more. I agree, more. but there's too many greenbacks. We're yeah. not going there. There's no reverse it's on 90, this car. It's like Same 95% of the NCAA's side. income. They're not going to shorten. <laughs> yeah, really. They're going to jack it up. But Greg, the point I make is what does Carolina need to accomplish? Um, here we are. What is it? January 13th. Halfway through the regular season. Halfway through the regular season, still plenty of ACC season to go. What does Carolina need to accomplish at this point in the season to make the NCAA tournament, given the fact that there are one, maybe two, three options or opportunities to have a Q1 win going forward? Yeah, a few numbers for you, Tommy. Um, I, I don't know that this has happened in my lifetime, to be honest. Um, but – and granted, the net hasn't been around that long, but even dating back with the RPI. In the second week of January, there is not an ACC team ranked in the top 10 of the net. There's only one ACC team ranked in the top 30, and that is Duke. And that's a relevant stat because uh, for a home game to count as a Q1 win, it's got to be against an opponent in the top 30. Uh, North Carolina right now is number 32 in the net. It's about where they were last year, and they were an eight seed in the NCAA tournament. Um, so, yeah, if we're talking about the ACC being a five-bit team, bit league this year, we're talking about teams that are going to be like nine and ten and maybe even 11 seeds. That's kind of where we're at. Uh, the only Q1 home opportunity North Carolina has remaining is Duke. They've got five Q1 games on the docket ahead. Uh, and I think that's Wake Forest, Duke, Clemson. Uh, and I'm trying to think, Wake, I'll say Wake Forest, Virginia Tech's the other one. So those are, those are their opportunities for Q1 games. Not many. 
And so all that to be said, North Carolina needs to win a lot of games. It'd be beneficial if they can beat Duke at least once and maybe still a couple of those Q1 games on the road. But more than anything, they just need to stack wins. Um, I don't know if – I don't know that 12 and 8 is good enough this year. It Which is crazy because used to be if you went 500 in the ACC, you were a lock. You were a lock. Tournament. Yep, absolutely. And with the league losing 52 games in non-conference play, which is just laughable, wow. um, the leagues hurt themselves because now you're only playing conference opponents and nobody in the conference other than Duke's 12, Carolina's 32. Somehow Virginia Tech is 39. They're 0-4 in the league. But those are the only teams ranked in the top 40. So you're playing a bunch of teams that aren't any good. And so I think the only way North Carolina gets in is just to win a lot of games. Um, and I think you got to win more than 12 to feel comfortable. I think Carolina can do that. I don't think there's anybody in this league really to worry about. But you do have to play at Louisville. Uh, Wake's pretty good. They're not great. They're pretty good. But there's a handful of teams, if Carolina doesn't play like they did against Virginia, they can lose on the road. I mean, like the Notre, Notre Dame. Dame game. Yep. Notre Dame's a bad loss for this team. And any other year, that's not a bad loss. Notre Dame's not bad. That's a bad loss. Every loss not Duke in this conference this year is a bad loss. Okay. Well, if you put it that way. Notre Dame could end up being top three team in the ACC. Greg just recited the numbers, though. Greg uses numbers all the time. So does the committee. Look, the one thing you need to learn, young man, <laughs> is that Greg Barnes says it, Greg Barnes means it, and it's the facts. Okay, so Notre Dame has played Boston College, Pittsburgh, Georgia terrible, Tech. Terrible. Georgia Tech's terrible, and then Clemson. So give them credit for beating Clemson in North Carolina, but both those games are on the road. They did lose at Boston College, by the way. Signature win. And they beat Kentucky. Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's just a, it's just a brutal ACC. It is not your father's Greg Gregory, excuse me. It's not your host ACC anymore. Um, where 500 got you in. I think Florida state got in the, in the tournament one year, they were six and 10 in the conference. I, triple check I mean, me there. Isn't Syracuse going right. to get in and go to the sweet 16? Like Say that again, Gregory. I mean, isn't Syracuse going to get in and go to the Sweet 16 like normal? Yeah, yeah, but this is <laughs> this is the first time in Jimmy Beheim's career, and he's been coaching for I 74 that. years, that they have a losing record at this point of the season. That's crazy. crazy. Really? Yeah. And he's got his son in his 17th year. And his grandson's playing now. I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah, really? That's not his grandson, is it? Buddy is still. He's his got son. two sons. They're both his sons. <laughs> Wait a minute! I was like, them dudes are old, but I didn't realize they're that old. It is a uh, it, it is crazy times in the ACC, and and yeah, I mean, Carolina just needs to win ball games by any means necessary. Georgia Tech, eight o'clock in the Smith Center on Saturday night. Um, we're going to get out of here. We're going on. Wow, it's almost two hours, and it is well past my bedtime. Shout out to everybody that stuck around. Vip can just like turn around and dive onto his bed there. Even though I will shout out that uh, Shaq shout out as well. You made the bed um, and kept the bed made before uh, the podcast. Jason Staples uh, joined us. And I know he's a busy man. And Greg Barnes, of course, is always 
um, doing his best to cover the Inside Carolina beat. Gregory Hall doing the same. Inside Carolina Live on Saturday at 10 a.m. Live from WCHL Studios. We'll be right here on YouTube Live um, with me and Gregory as Joey Powell is on vacation. And Isaiah. Shout out. And Isaiah will be in. Isaiah Lucas will be in studio. So join us then. Watch us. Um, check it out. We'll have some guests. Shout out to the boys of Econ 101. I was told that there's a few freshman students at Carolina that watch us religiously. So shout out to those dudes. Uh, keep keep listening and keep commenting. Johnny T-shirt, keep supporting us. Inside Carolina Live on Saturday. Inside Carolina on the Beat Live. Out. Thanks, boys. If you want to win your fantasy football league, it starts right now. The offseason is the best time to get ahead of the competition. We'll help you win your league on the Fantasy Football Today podcast, part of CBS Sports Podcast Network. Fantasy Football Today has three episodes every week following the latest news, giving you early rankings, early sleepers, breakouts, and busts. So if you're a dedicated fantasy football manager, check out the most dedicated podcast, Fantasy Football Today. Download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere podcasts are found.